12. I want to begin reading in verse 3 of the chapter. I'm tempted to begin with the opening verse, those two most familiar verses that we've looked at in the last couple of studies in Romans. But our attention's always sharpest when we start, and I think those are familiar enough that we can just remind you of them as we begin to read, and that in many ways sets the foundation and the context. Uh, for the chapters, really, the remainder of the book, the chapters that follow. So we'll begin reading in verse 3, and we'll read down through the end today of verse 16. For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise, your own conceits. Well, amen. Linda reading. We trust that the Lord will add His blessing to the public reading. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, as we have read these words of instruction to Your people, truly we can echo the last hymn we've sung that something of the mind of Christ would dwell in us. So much of the instruction we've read even in these verses today is reflected in another of the epistles. Where the apostle introduces the teaching by saying, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And so help us today to seek something more of Him and of His mind. Prosper, not merely the reading, but our meditations together. Give help in preaching, give help in hearing. And we ask that by your Spirit we will be enabled so to do. We pray it in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. I don't know if that was heat or air that came on, but uh, 
Nolan, be mindful of your brethren as the uh, passage speaks. And if you see people starting to turn different shades of blue, help them out a little bit. The preacher will get through. Maybe I can always take off my coat. I think I preached the first two years of my ministry without a coat on over in the Civic Center in Clemens, so it has been done before. Sorry, I begin. Uh, it's been a few weeks since we were last here in Romans. So it would be good for us to set the stage for what we consider, and I want to consider all of the verses we read together today. But to set the stage, I say by a little bit of review. We saw in those most familiar opening two verses really the foundation of all the Christian service, the practical application, the practical outworking of the Gospel that takes up the remainder of this epistle. There are absolute necessities that are part of Christian living. Of course, the basic absolute necessity is to be a Christian. Uh, There are attempts at Christian living by those that are not Christians, and that's not gospel. That's self-righteousness, and it's repugnant to God and to men. The foundation of Christian service, truth. He's beseeching us, therefore, based on all that has come before, what we know and learn What we have experienced in the Gospel itself is not going to leave us where we were in our sins. If any man's in Christ, we read elsewhere, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's part of this newness of Christian life that will be put before us here in the remainder of this epistle. Grace, the mercies of God, Gratitude of heart based on having received grace and not received what we really deserve in ourselves and in our sins. Of course, that central point of those opening verses, that of self-sacrifice. We're not our own. What a different mindset than the world has. Of course, it is that contrast between the world and the believer. It closes out those two foundational verses. Be not conformed to this world. We talked about really the two terms in the New Testament that speak to us of this world, of this age. That which gives community to the lost. Sinners can connect with themselves, with other sinners in this worldly mindset. Certainly that we shared when we were outside of Christ. There's still an old man within us that can gravitate toward that that we're to put down. We're to build up the new man. And this new man is transformed by the renewing of his mind, we read. There's something that makes us different. And after this full orb summary in these opening two verses of practical Christianity here in this cursed world Paul begins to touch upon some highlights of what this is going to look like I don't think in any case he gives exhaustive lists what we will see here today with regard to gifts he's not trying to outline gifts he's not trying as we'll see to outline particular offices in the church he's just giving particular illustrations of the principle that he's just put forth and so Paul's going to start telling us what this Christianity is going to look like, I say. And here, I want to begin by having us focus on the fact that 
if we're not to be conformed to this world, if we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, if worldliness is what gives community to those outside of Christ, to those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, to those who are on that journey that we see in chapter 1 of that spiraling downward in depravity and sin, well, we've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness, to borrow from Colossians, and translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. And so it's not a surprise that when Paul begins to speak about Christian living and practical stuff, he's going to start, we'll see, with our relationship one to another. Because we've been taken out of that community that was contrary to God and placed now in a community, in the body of Christ, that is according to God and following after God. And I think it's interesting, I say, that Paul starts these practical admonitions, not with lists, as it were, of things the world is and things we're not, but he, he starts it by giving illustration of who and what we are among ourselves in this new community. And so, it's not that we only experience change in our activities. There's change in our associations. We're nurturing up this new life within a new community. And I want to give a little background or a little thought with regard to that community before we get into the text here today. A little aside, if you will, on the church. When I was younger, my teen years, I was about to say that's when you start paying attention to the preacher, but I think you can pay attention when you're little too. I remember some services, some times in church as a really little guy, blessed with singing praises and challenged with what I heard from the Word, so maybe I was misspeaking there. But when I was old enough to begin understanding doctrine in particular, the word church, ecclesia in the New Testament, was emphasized a lot. Now that was, well because it's in the New Testament a lot, and it's worthy of emphasis, but my particular circles, the dispensational circles, the church was just a New Testament thing. And so there was great emphasis on this new body of called out people. Well, I'm not getting into those controversies, which we regularly touch upon, but a community, Old and New Testament, actually the word, the Greek word ekklesia, is used frequently in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to God's people and the assemblings of God's people as well. But God's people as a community that are called out from, well, the cursed world. There are different pieces of that that we see when we look at church history and how God's people are spoken of. We speak about the church militant. Those are living believers. People that are still in their pilgrim journey in this fallen world. We hear and read of those called the church triumphant. Those whose pilgrimage here in this cursed world is over. Paul said to depart and be with Christ is far better. Paul was saying if we use the language of church history, I'd much rather be in the church triumphant than the church militant. But for now, God has me in the church militant, and it's good, and I'm serving. 
But we are God's people. We're a called out people. I might suggest far more than a dispensational word. Ecclesia is a good Calvinistic word. We have been effectually called out of this world's community. And think of the blessing of that. I remember growing up with a lot of preaching, and I grew up, well, the decades, but let's just single out the 70s at least. Well, the world was showing its colors. The 60s, the sexual revolution, the casting off of social mores, rules, values, the culture a lot of necessary and good preaching about being different than the world about being called out but it's not just true of New Testament all believers in Christ are taken out of the pool of fallen humanity and placed in that community of redeemed humanity by union with Christ Really, if you want to take a phrase and summarize Romans 1 to 11, there it is. Union with Christ. We talked about the two Adams there in chapter 5, so central to it all. When we think about that, then, this new community has an expression in the world. Again, as a believer, it's not just my activities that are changed. My associations are different. My associations are new. What part then does this new community play in my life here? Simply put, we need one another. We need the help of iron sharpening iron. We need the grace of God's presence where even two or three are gathered in His name that He's in a peculiar way there in the midst. I say it's something in our modern context. A little phrase I use often too, the Americanization of the church. Individualism. Well, that's not really part of community, is it? The good, necessary part the church, and I'm not just talking about parties and our own thing. Mindful of God's people and other communities, other orthodox, Bible-believing denominations as well. But there's something about my local church, my local community of believers, where I give, or I'm given particular help. We don't speak of the means of grace lightly. The ordinary ways through which God ministers to us, through His Word, through the communion of the saints, through that iron, sharpening iron. So I say, let us be jealous for that. If we're not to be conformed to this world, that organizing principle that's contrary to God, that community of unbelievers, It has different expressions, different particulars, the same way we'll see some distinctions among 
this community as we read our portion today. We've been taken out of that community and placed in another. So as we approach our text today, I want us to consider this beginning of Paul's practical admonitions in Romans. There is some general agreement, I should say first, among commentators on what Paul is doing in the remainder of this chapter, and that is he gives instruction with regard to our relationship to other believers, and then he gives instruction with regard to our relationship to those that are outside. Uh, There's a little disagreement as to what verse is the dividing line between those, and I don't think that we have to be dogmatic. I'm going to throw my lot in with those that see verse 16 is the last part of his instruction with regard to our relationship to other believers. And verse 17 then starting some instruction with regard to those that are outside. So I want to entitle today's message, How to Treat Your Brother, and Lord willing, next Lord's Day, How to Treat Your Neighbor. So let us look today as we've been brought into this new community of believers this communion of saints. Well, what is that? What is our new life in our own soul going to look like as we interact with others that have been born from above? I just want to put four words before you today. How to treat your brother. And these four words are just attempts to give structure and summary to what is, as we say, in many ways a a rapid-fire statement of examples of general principles that we should follow. So the first word I put before you today, and this one is singled out just in the third verse itself, and that is the word humility. Humility. What do we read in the conclusion to that, the paragraph? Remember chapter 3? That most important paragraph ever written, as Martin Lloyd-Jones calls it. What followed on very quickly from that? What was the impact of understanding the Gospel as it's summarized there? Where is boasting then? It's excluded. Well, lo and behold, the first point of our practical outliving of the Gospel among ourselves is humility. It is the opposite of boasting. Because of course all of us in this new community are recipients of grace. We don't have any merit of our own. And so we read here, Paul says, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now, I won't try and give my own summary, but commentators give different summaries of Paul's striking use of language here. He four times has different variations of a a central word with regard to this thinking. You know, there's overthinking. Thinking more highly than we ought to. We should think soberly instead of in that way. If you think of that, you think too highly of yourself. You're not thinking straight. You're not sober. Soberly, you're going to think differently than too highly of yourself. Paul opens this discussion of our relation one to another. And he lays the foundation, I say, 
of humility. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Further in Philippians 2, and he adds to this thought that we are to esteem others better than ourselves. Now that's pretty remarkable language. But think of it. In the Gospel, if we understand our position in the first Adam, if we understand our position not only as fallen and depraved in Him, but adding to that depravity our own actual transgressions and sins, well, we are a hell-deserving sinner. That's not very high on the totem pole of esteemed beings. And so if we understand the Gospel, boasting is going to be excluded. We come into the Gospel, we come to Christ, we're saved, we enter a new community. The things that I've been taken back with in my own Christian journey and experience. So often, believers, we bring worldly thinking into our new relationship, our new community. Our pride, our insecurity, our fears, our rebellion, it had its own way of showing itself when we were in the world. We're convicted of our sin, we repent of our sin, we come to faith in Christ, we enter a new community, but that old man still stirs. And our pride and our insecurity, and on and on, can seek to find ways to express itself here. It's going to look different than the world. The things we did when we were in the world. Used to sing in the dorms, at dorm meetings occasionally. Things I used to do, don't do them anymore. Sorry, you've never heard that. It's one of those rounds. You can get a dormitory pretty loud with three or four hundred guys singing it. Remember one time, the dorm leader was adding verses to it. You know, things he used to do, and you over there, well, look, he added about verse six or seven, the things I used to date. Don't date them anymore. Dr. Bob III was there that night. He really laughed at that one. So, who knows the context? But, but anyway. It's not just this stuff that we used to do, we don't do that anymore, but we can bring the same mind into our new relationships. Now that prideful, self-promoting mindset is gone. In humility, we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but soberly. Pride can come well, it comes with subtlety. Pride can, as we've often quoted, grow with the decrease of other sins. We can become proud, ultimately, that we're not proud. What an odious thing sin is. But think of it. You get frustrated with another person. We can do that in our normal relationships with those outside and you start bringing it a little closer in what about home what about a marriage these are people that you don't just work with come in and punch the clock those days I guess are gone um, punch out and go home 
you're all busy doing your work while you're there, so you don't have a lot of interaction. It comes before some. But home's all about living together, interacting with one another on purpose and of necessity. And we can begin to notice more of our spouse's flaws. Well, anytime you're tempted to notice your spouse's flaws, no denying they're going to be there, just think about the fact that their spouse might have some flaws too. It's possible that your flaws might be worse than their flaws. It's possible that your flaws could be more frustrating than their flaws. And you don't want a lot of commentary coming back on your flaws. Maybe apply some of that golden rule. And think, you know, I may have this strength. My spouse doesn't. Maybe you have a strength that you always know where the car keys are. And your spouse doesn't. Well, happen. Guess what? They got a strength or two that you don't. Put the things in perspective. Paul says to the grace given to him not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Think soberly. Really the beginning, the middle, the ending of how to treat our brother is to treat them with humility. Recognize I deserve to be in hell. And for everything I know about myself, I deserve to be there more than he does. That's going to change how you deal with your brother. But secondly, from verses 4 to 8, can I suggest to you the term diversity? Diversity. Paul uses an image that is familiar to him as his other epistles of, of the body. The different members, the different parts of the body, their different functions. Paul isn't giving here a list of offices. He's dealing with gifts rather than offices. And he's not even giving a exhaustive list of gifts. It's interesting if you look at the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament, there are two or three places where they're actually listed out, but the lists aren't the same. And it's just so even in places where they are listed out, it's not exhaustive. It's just exemplary. But these diverse gifts, and if you think of the humility that he's suggested in verse 3, as we come into this diversity that he outlines in the following verses, then I'm going to not say, well, since I have this gift, that's the greatest thing, and the other gifts are insignificant. All the gifts are going to be pursued with humility, going to be pursued with grace. Because how he points it out as he begins then in verse 6 to list them, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, 
Let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Now there's an interesting statement. He's not necessarily dealing here with the extraordinary gift of prophecy that was present in the early church. He could have that in mind. But we see that gift spoken of in a more general way. The prophetic voice and office in the church. Public speaking. Well, that's one that gets a lot of attention because it's up front. There's a little extra uh, groundwork for the flesh to come in. Well, that's, you know, that's people see you and that you're, you're up there. Well, notice how he speaks of it prophesying according to the proportion of, interestingly, commentators point out, the article is present. Proportion of the faith. It may indeed, and I'm inclined to believe Paul is speaking here about this gift of prophecy being exercised according to the proportion of the faith. So I'm going to come as even giving expression to prophetic gift in the church with humility. Because I'm not speaking my own stuff. It's in proportion to the faith. I have to just speak what God has already spoken. And so even the putting forth of that gift is not in the promotion of self. That's humility. He speaks of ministry, of serving. That's one that should flow from humility. Have humility front, center, and middle, and everything else with regard to this gift. And yet, sometimes the flesh can seek to corrupt that. But ministry, let us wait on our ministry. Let us truly serve. Not self-serving under the camouflage of serving others. Teaching, it comes from teaching to exhorting. We hasten through these examples here again of the main principle. Teaching appeals to understanding. Of course, it's closely related to prophecy. Proclaiming truth. But understanding then, well, we're going to add as we did with prophecy according to the faith. What we find and what God has revealed unto us. But it's not just something that touches the understanding. He moves from teaching to exhortation. I think it was John Murray that put it this way teaching appeals to the understanding, exhortation appeals to the understand truth. You can understand practical stuff. What you ought to do. Sometimes we need the exhortation to appeal not merely to the mind to educate, but to the heart to motivate that we might act even upon that which we know. It moves from there to giving. He says, he that giveth, verse 8, let him do it with simplicity. Gift is among the gifts. For those that have a gift, a heart for giving. Again, do we exercise this in a fleshly way or in a gospel way? How is giving exercised among this new community of believers? With simplicity. Without ulterior motives. 
he phrases it elsewhere. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Giving with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. Administration, governing, leading. That's service. Sometimes people think it's, well, in the flesh it can be self-serving. We might even discover that in the political arena that some people that are given to lead do so with self-serving motives. Easy to digress. Political year is upon us. I'll digress briefly. I would love to see it required of politicians that their net worth is published when they first say they're going to run for county dog catcher. First time they ever got into politics. What's the guy's net worth? Follow his political career. Look at the salaries of, and then where's his net worth nowadays? I digress. How did I get there from here? Giving with simplicity. Oh, no, no, I've already done that. Government. Humility coming into ruling. You've heard me say with context to leadership and home and marriage. Leadership and authority is not the selfish privilege of forcing our will on other people. It is the selfless responsibility of pursuing God's will ourselves and in the lives of those that we need. There is a world of difference. Not just an ocean of difference. A whole world of difference between those two attitudes toward ruling. Leadership. This is gospel government. And then he speaks of mercy last. Mercy with cheerfulness. Calvin actually highlights there about ministry and deeds of mercy to those that are in need. To seek to be a cheering part of their day, as it were. And not begrudging, not with despondency. Exercising mercy with cheerfulness. Well, this I say under this category of diversity. And again, Paul's not trying to give an exhaustive list of everything that goes on among God's people, of everything that goes on in the church, of every office, or every gift within the church. He's just saying all of our gifts, all of our interaction one with another, with the humility, verse 3, and understand the diversity of the ways in which this is shown. But verses 9 and 10, we come to our third word today. And that I would suggest to you is just the word sincerity. And this is an accommodation. Well, it's not to alliteration because the points aren't alliterated, but they all have the same ending. Love is a part. But it is a sincere love. It is genuine, heartfelt love. Not some outward showy display of something that's quite different. And so I use the word here, sincerity. A couple that I read 
spoke as we read and see elsewhere of how the New Testament, how the early church took up the word agape. You know, there are different Greek words for love. Eros, where we get our word erotic, love, was one word for love in the New Testament. That's not what's in view in our loving interaction with our brethren. Phileo, brotherly love, that belongs to us and it can belong to even those outside. There's an affection, a mutual interaction that is good. But then at times that falls short because agape, it is a love that even transcends mutual affection and feeling. It comes to the realm of self-sacrifice. It comes to the point of expressing love, of treating others, perhaps even those that we don't have a natural attraction to, a natural affinity with. We treat them well. We love them. Of course, he in chapter 5 has given the extreme example of this. God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, who are sinners, rebels against Him, despisers of His law, suppressing His revelation, His truth, He set His love on them. And so here, this characteristic, this new, distinctly Christian view of the, the terms. Let love be without dissimulation. Love of the brethren. And then he says within this, abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. One I read phrased it this way, our attitude towards good and evil must be violently partisan. Violently partisan. Now, not violence in the sense of any physical violence or anything of the sort. Radically partisan. We don't just have an indifferent attitude toward things that are evil. Sin is the transgression of the law. The law is the expression of the will and nature and character of our God. We can't just be indifferent about that which is contrary to Him. It's in rebellion against Him. And so we don't accommodate evil. We abhor that which is evil. We read in Proverbs, ye that love the Lord, hate evil. Now it's not anger, malice, all that stuff that our flesh gets mingled in, but it is a clear judicial renunciation. We don't give it room. We don't sanction it. So here, part of our sincerity, part of our love, Think of that. 
part of our love to our brother, part of our love to ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. Gospel never says you don't love yourself, you just love other people. No, we should love ourselves. And how do we best love ourselves? Well, I'll, I'll transgress God's law. I'll transgress the very definition of right and wrong. I'll transgress the very definition of happiness versus misery. I love myself. I'm going to hold myself to that standard of love. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. I'm tempted to say in what Preachers, previous generation could easily have said one thing for us to say that and another thing for Paul to say that in the midst of this Roman world and all of its outward open wickedness. Well, open the window and look outside. That's the world we're living in now. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one to another. You think about how that shows itself, preferring one another. Remember when Paul had to write many points of rebuke to the church at Corinth? And one of them was the people in Corinth taking one another to court, suing one another. Becomes an industry. Lawyers take out ads on television. You've got to stir up business. But they don't get paid for it. Well, preferring one another. What did they say to the Corinthians in that case? Why do you not rather suffer wrong? You could put a commercial on about that. Why do you not rather suffer wrong than try and stick it to this or stick it to that insurance company? Maybe if fewer of you did that, the rest of our rates wouldn't be quite so high. I digress. An honor preferring one another. There's a sincerity, genuine love that's part of how I treat my brother. And lastly, verses 11 to 16, and I must hasten. I just put here the word activity. Because Paul here begins to, again, just, I don't rattle off sounds like a derogatory way to say it. He, he just quickly puts forth bullet points of how this is going to look. In verse 11, there's a trio of exhortations here. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. It's interesting to think of that and, and the relationship of those three in that verse. Not to be slothful in business, to be, to be fervent in business, to be working, to be busy, and have the Spirit fervent in spirit. One even talked about having water on the boil. You can tell the era of this commentator. He talked about a steam locomotive. 
and having the water boiling all the time so that there's energy there for the engine to push the train along. So if we're going to be working, if we're not going to be slothful, because the positive is put negatively here, you're not slothful in your business. Fervent in spirit. To have that water boiling to strengthen us for our lack of slothfulness, for our activity. But then sometimes that fervency of spirit and that busyness can become corrupted. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That brings the humility into our activity. You can be fervent. You can be zealous. You can be almost hyperactive in service. Slothfulness is the last thing you could possibly be accused of. But is it to the Lord? The self being eliminated from this equation in our activity. Then we come to verse 12. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing instant in prayer. One I read described verse 12 as a sandwich. Pretty apt illustration. In the middle of this trio, you've got trials. We're to be patient in our trials. Patient in our tribulations. What helps us as believers? Talking about this community that's different than the world's community. How does a believer have the ability to deal with trouble in life differently than the ungodly? Well, the ungodly are just living for this life. And if stuff in this life goes bad, everything's bad. Despair overwhelms. You think of the despair that is just about that far under the surface in much of our community. I mean, road rage? The guy didn't use his turn signal and you start pumping lead his direction? It starts to happen. How are we dealing with our triumphs? Well, we have something on the top, if you will, of that sandwich. Hope. Rejoicing and hope. We understand this life is part of a cursed system. Our hope, our expectation, our joy isn't fixed upon this life. We're pilgrims and strangers here. We're citizens of a new kingdom. And so we're rejoicing in hope even when there's trouble. But then we, we need help. We're not just on top of the mountain all the time. So the bottom layer of the sandwich is prayer. Instant and prayer. Lord, give me the grace to see that this life and this problem I'm having in this life now isn't everything. Strengthen me to rejoice and hope even in the face of this trial that I need to be patient through. An interesting, I say, description of verse 12. A nice little sandwich there for daily life. Verse 13, we hasten. Distributing to the necessity of the saints given the hospitality. 
it's easy in the worldly community not to do this. To look out for number one. Now there's charity and charitable organizations and all that kind of stuff in the world, philanthropy. And we shouldn't say none of these things are ever good or ever do any good. But again, the foundation for that among the unbelievers is very shallow. Just in that realm we speak of as common grace. But for the believer, giving to the necessity of the saints to be given to hospitality has a deeper, a different root. Freely you have received, Christ says to His own. Freely give. Verse 14, Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Here's where I think those that wrestle with the line of demarcation in the chapter between how to treat your brother and how to treat your neighbor. Are we still talking about Christians when we talk about being persecuted? Well, I can understand people that differ with that and say that's an outside to inside thing. But then we, we look at the New Testament, look at church history, and it may be that persecution is something that can happen Inside, too. Think of some of the admonitions of individuals in the epistles that we read. Think of the party spirit in Corinth that was stirred up. So, we leave this in the section with dealing with our brother because it can happen inside as well. Think of Paul's mindset one suggested Paul being smitten with regard to the persecution. Stephen, bless them that persecute you. And here's again where we need a gospel heart. The fleshly mindset says when you deal with persecution or crimes or problems, you just ignore them. You know, let him out of jail. It's no big deal. How did Stephen pray? Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When Stephen prayed for his persecutors, he didn't ignore the fact that what they did was sin. was wrong. And here, this attitude it takes grace. It takes humility. Verse 15, Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Been blessed the last couple of years. I mentioned a year or so ago, my broken chronometer is still there, but the expression of this in our congregation was so evident. But you look at this, and I've been taken, I think I mentioned this some years ago, and I I don't know that I was reading the same people. Maybe they were quoting this. I think it was Chrysostom. So we're looking pretty far back in the early church where this thought was put forth. You would think it would be harder to weep with those that weep than it would be to rejoice with those that rejoice. 
But when you think it through in reality, it's, it's really the other way. We can weep with those that weep. If we've been born from above and have the love of the brethren, we're going to feel that with them. Now we may to greater and lesser degrees, it may be something we need to stir up and do better at. I'm not saying that it's always perfectly natural and we always do it exactly as we should, but weeping with those that weep, there aren't as many barriers to that. But rejoicing with those that rejoice. As Austin said, this is harder. We have that obstacle of envy. Do you find it easy to rejoice when the other guy is blessed? When the other guy gets that massive promotion and you don't? When the other guy, you know, the hood on his car is not sitting up in the parking lot? (laughs) To be able genuinely to say, I'm glad that they've been blessed. I can rejoice in their good. That's grace. That's grace. That's part of how we treat our brother. And then we come to verse 16. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things. Condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise your own conceits. Paul is virtually quoting a proverb there, being not wise in your own eyes. I remember this text even as a very little boy. It was one of my dad's favorite phrases. Condescend to men of low estate. Dad used to go visit occasionally people from the congregation that didn't have a lot of other people that paid them a lot of attention. People of low estate. Someone you can condescend to. Somewhat that in some ways you might have it better than them. Might in some people's eyes be above them. Meeting with them, loving them, helping them, encouraging them, giving them attention when you don't get anything out of it. In the world, charity, it's not universally true, but very often. Giving is with an expectation of what's in it for me. Maybe even just a tax write-off. Did your guy's email box fill up in December? I digress. Condescending the man of low estate when there's nothing in it for me. The polls, I say, hasn't listed every gift. He hasn't listed every action. He certainly hasn't sought to list every thought. But here's a sample about how to treat my brother. 
humility and love are going to permeate everything. Let us have that gospel taught. And if we could borrow from another of Paul's letters, let this mind be in us. Because it was also in Christ Jesus. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come today grateful and humbled by the instruction that we read. We're thankful for every help and every mercy that You give us toward these things. We read today of how You have given to every man the measure of faith. Lord, we humbly with gospel thinking recognize that even the faith through which we are to exercise these various gifts among ourselves is God-given. It is You that deal out this very gift and grace of faith. The Lord make something of the mind of Christ in us today. Even in these bullet points, these turns of phrase that the Apostle puts out there, that there will be challenges and encouragements for gospel thinking expressed in gospel living and how to treat my brother. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.